It's Monday, February 10th, 2020. I'm JD, and welcome to Modern Feed's Impossible Planet. Let me explain. A big part of Modern Feed is providing daily essential listening for your morning commute or drive home. But another part of the vision is providing essential listening around specific areas of interest. And I'm hoping that someday soon, you'll be able to choose what you want delivered based on your interests. This week, I'm going to start introducing you to these interest-based channels. Why? Because first, as always, I'd love your feedback. And second, now that there are over 900,000 podcasts, there's a real need to surface the amazing stuff that tell the stories we care about. Now, Modern Feed's Impossible Planet channel includes essential listening around nature, climate, science, and sustainability in a package like you've never heard before. And today's three stories illustrate that. Let's start with a field trip I took this weekend inspired by the world of podcasting. This will be fun. Now, definitely don't try this at home because, well, you guessed it. I'm recording as I drive across the Arizona desert. Please report it ahead. uh Uh-oh. It is spectacular, beautiful. And why am I doing this? Well, we've all thought about the possibility of building an entirely self-sustaining alternative to Earth, right? And in the Vox Media and Curbed, you know, the folks that bring you Eater, Grubhub, New York Mag, Vulture, their podcast, Nice Try, they explore all kinds of failed utopias. And after hearing the episode on Biosphere 2 in Arizona, I jumped in my car and drove to see for myself. Okay, here's the setup. It's 1990 and Texas billionaire Ed Bass has funded to the tune of about 200 million bucks the dream of a cultish utopian organization called the Synergians, run by a guy named John Allen. And here's the idea. Take eight Synergians and lock them away for two years in a bizarre greenhouse-like environment constructed in the middle of the Arizona desert. Build in that environment. Watch out, pothole. Whoa, take it away, Avery Truffleman, the terrific host who you may recognize from 99% Invisible. The Synergians envisioned a new way to go to space. You know, we don't want to go to space in a tin can. We want to build a whole ecosystem and live on other planets. The Synergians weren't interested in freeze-dried meals and pouches and catheters and all the sterile trappings of NASA space travel. No. They wanted something utopian and Edenic. They dreamed of a biosphere, a self-sustaining system with lush waterfalls and wafts of frankincense. But first they wanted to build a prototype, a paradise that would be sealed off for a hundred years for humans to observe, to study how we could one day live in space, sure, but also something more. An ecologist who helped build Biosphere 2 told us that their work was motivated by the Gaia hypothesis, which proposes that the whole Earth is a self-regulating system. This hypothesis, of course, would be insanely difficult to test, But Biosphere 2 offered a possibility. A chance to watch how life, environment, and atmosphere work together as a complex, singular, shifting system. Because Biosphere 2 is a modern-day myth, of course, things don't go as planned. So, in an effort to salvage the operation, billionaire investor Ed Bass first calls in a group of scientists Then later, Steve Bannon, I'm not kidding, along with armed stormtroopers, take over the joint. Here's one of the scientists explaining. Like Tony Burgess, the ecologist who helped design the desert in Biosphere 2, 
He was the one who made sure it was like a real desert. Any idiot can design a, a what you call a Disney desert, you know, strip, throw down a, a, a bunch of gravel and put plastic underneath it to keep the weeds down and, and appropriately site a few plants and rocks. But that's not really a functioning desert, and it doesn't evolve at all. Because that was what the whole project was all about, evolution and growth and change. It was organic and Edenic and chaotic, not a test of one solid hypothesis. It was a different kind of research, which is why Tony thought the scientific review was going to be totally pointless. How could these traditional scientists begin to understand what they were going for? The whole thing was a waste of time because it didn't have any controls. It had people involved. It was messy. It was an interesting natural history thing, but it wasn't real rigorous science. Now, there are plenty of lessons to take from my Biosphere 2 weekend odyssey inspired by the Nice Try podcast, which is in your playlist below. You'll love it, along with the short bonus episode from the BBC. The first is that a podcast can lead to an enlightened adventure. And along the way, there's plenty of opportunity to listen to other great podcasts leading to other real world and imagined adventures. Furthermore, and feeling a bit like Pee Wee Herman in his tour of the Alamo, I had the obvious revelation that the real lesson of Biosphere 2 is that there's plenty of opportunity to have impact right here on planet Earth. And little things can go a long way. So I want to share one of those great podcasts I heard along the way. It's from Wisconsin Public Radio, and it's called To the Best of Our Knowledge. Saturday's episode deals with the deep concept, prepare yourself, of eye-to-eye animal encounters, otherwise known as eye-to-eye epiphanies. It's what happens when the mutual gaze is not human-to-human, but human-to-animal. You know what I mean. It's when you stare into the eyes of your dog or cat, wondering what they're thinking, or when you walk down the street and look at a bird and it looks back at you, or look into a cow's eyes. What are they thinking? It's really about slowing down for a second, having a little empathy for the critters and creatures around you, and asking, are we necessarily the center of the world? Let's listen to a clip of Jane Goodall talking about this concept. If I could be inside the mind of a chimpanzee for just a few minutes, I would learn more about them than another goodness knows how many years of study, because we can guess what they're thinking, but how do they think? Are they thinking in pictures? How do you think without words? I spent ages thinking about that, wondering about it. Fascinating, right? There's a number of examples from the podcast. A family of raptors has a nest and stares at the family of humans right by them. A guy goes to an urban golf course and two coyotes stare at him from a distance. A hunter injures an animal that stares into his eyes before its certain impending death. A woman stares at a squirrel every day thinking, what is it thinking? Here's a little bit more from Jane Goodall in To the Best of Our Knowledge. One moment was very, very special and that was when I was sitting in the forest with David Greybeard. I picked up a fruit and held it out to him. He turned his head away and I put my hand closer. He turned, looking directly into my eyes. He reached out, took the fruit, dropped it. He really didn't want it. Then he very gently squeezed my hand, which is how chimpanzees reassure each other. 
In that moment, we communicated in a way that seemed to predate words, perhaps in a way that was used by our own common ancestor millions of years ago. Amazing, right? It's in your playlist below, along with a recent episode of the great NPR science podcast, Shortwave, where the excellent host, Maddie Safai, looks into the science behind what happens when you and your dog stare into each other's eyes. It's a great companion to to the best of our knowledge and really worth listening to. Here's a taste. And so what this group were able to do was they brought people and their dogs into their lab mm -hmm. and from video analysis, they looked at how much they looked into each other's eyes. And they found that in both partners, both the dog and the person, when they looked lovingly into each other's eyes, their levels of oxytocin spiked so that you see the exact same hormonal response in people with their beloved dogs as you see when people who have a strong loving relationship look into each other's eyes. So well, it's another line of evidence that this love that dogs have for us and indeed we have for them is coded into our very biology. I love it. And while Modern Feeds Impossible Planet will not shy away from sharing some of the really tough stories that are everywhere as we race to save our own biosphere, we'll also explore amazing stories that just give us a greater understanding of the world around us. Now, here's our final podcast from today, something that I heard a while back from the BBC's food program. It's called Delicious and Endangered, the story of bluefin tuna. I heard this about a year ago, and what really struck me is how it turned everything I thought on its head, especially the myth of how the bluefin tuna became so popular in Japan. It also gives a great background on the Tokyo fish market, a place that if you've ever visited, you'll never forget. Here's a clip. It's in your playlist below. Delicious and Endangered, the story of the bluefin tuna. The surprising bluefin event came in the 1970s when Japan became one of Asia's major exporters of electronic goods. They were uh, flying over huge airplanes full of Sony Walkmans and things like that to the United States, to North America. The problem was these huge expensive airplanes were flying back to Japan, their cargo holds empty. And so it was actually a cargo logistics team at Japan Airlines in Japan was tasked with finding something from North America that they could put in these planes on the way back that Japanese people would want to buy. And this uh, one executive, Akira Okazaki, he's, a, he's totally unknown in the United States, but he's, he's a bit famous in Japan for this. He traveled all over the place in uh, North America, and he discovered in uh, the Northeast, in Canada and the United States, that sport fishermen were going out in small boats and catching enormous bluefin tuna. They were just catching them. They'd have their photo taken with them, and then they didn't know what to do with the fish. And that's it. I'll be back in the next day or so with the Talk and Watch Modern Feeds Guide to Essential Listening and Viewing. Have a great evening. Thanks for listening.